Brother Harold has asked us to mark song number 170, and so we'll use that at the appropriate time this evening following our lesson as a song of encouragement, a hymn of invitation. Song number 170. We are blessed again to be able to assemble even as we are now. And didn't the writer of the psalm so long ago proclaim in Psalm 89 verse 52, Blessed be the name of the Lord forevermore and forevermore. It is the case that tonight we can proclaim with all the being and the breath that's in us, the goodness, the greatness, the glory of God. And as we do that tonight, using a portion of His Word, we'll focus our efforts upon that which was read earlier, taken from Proverbs, the 19th chapter, verse number 22, kindness and its fruits. I'd invite you to take a journey with me this evening as we look at a number of texts and passages that seem in one way or another to touch the subject of kindness and to challenge us to appreciate more deeply and more fully the nature of that matter as well as to see it in the perspective that God sees it. Kindness and its fruits. To begin upon that journey, some introductory thoughts, if you please, concerning the nature of the lesson tonight. I believe it's a fair thing to say that kindness, the act of being kind, is enjoined upon all individuals. It seems as though we probably none of us would be aware of a person who would condemn being kind. We see it urged upon us in the news media. We seem to have an innate character in our consciousness that desires kindness, that wants to be kind to others, and to exhibit that kindness in the way that's the most helpful and meaningful for them. To say those things is perhaps to remind us that kindness seems to be very carefully and very directly a thing that opposes the inhumanity that man sometimes shows toward himself. Aren't we sometimes appalled to listen to the nightly news and to see the abject inhumanity with which one person may treat another? To do things that for you and me seem practically unthinkable. And yet, we see that just the opposite of that would truly be genuine kindness. To act towards someone else using that characteristic and that trait that we would call kindness. Some of those additional thoughts that I've listed for your consideration might help us appreciate more interestingly what's involved in kindness. That's one of those words that seems to be a little bit easier to identify than it is to define. One of the definitions that I consulted related kindness to these things. It involves sympathy. It involves gentleness. It involves benevolence. It involves helping someone else. It involves aiding them and caring for them. Kindness involves all of that in one way or another. And we can now see why that's the direct opposite of some of those things we see, the inhumaneness and the inhumanity that sometimes can be shown. The Old Testament, in fact, uses a word that's translated in a variety of ways, depending on its context. There are times it's translated as mercy. There are times it's translated as loving kindness. There are times it's translated as steadfast love. And there are times it's translated as kindness. That gives us some appreciation, it seems, as to the depth of this word, the profound character that can well associate to it. Perhaps one more idea before we begin the major portion of the lesson in earnest. If we needed any greater motivation and any greater incentive to develop kindness within ourselves, could there be any greater than noting that God is kind? 
the Scriptures identify and describe God as being a God of great kindness. In fact, in Nehemiah 9.17, there in the heart of the Old Testament, that great and noble character of old and lower, in fact, expressed the shortcomings of Israel. He, in fact, confessed, My people are weak and they've sinned. But God, you are a God of great mercy, a God who will pardon, a God of great consideration, and a God of great kindness. Even Nehemiah applauded the character of the kindness of God. And isn't it amazing that that minor prophet Joel echoed virtually verbatim similar statements in Joel 2.13, when again he lamented over the state of Israel's sin. And yet in the midst of that, God in fact told Israel, Rend your heart and not your garments. Repentance was merely more to be just than an outward show. Your heart needs to be in the repentance that you show. But in that context, Joel also affirmed God is a God of great kindness. In Jonah 4 verse 2, that reluctant prophet of old who at first did not do that which God told him to do, but then after spending three days in the belly of a great fish, he came to his senses and then did what God bade him to do. In the closing chapter of that book, isn't it true even then that that reluctant prophet admitted that God, you are a God of great kindness, and you will forgive these Ninevites if they repent. Sure enough, Nineveh repented, and God spared them. But Jonah understood that God is a God of great kindness. Those thoughts only motivate us to notice even the Apostle Paul affirmed that thought. The great kindness of God in Titus 3 verse 4. But those things whet our appetite, I hope, to notice what's next. What are two great lessons that we might appreciate about kindness so that we can perhaps be more kind in our disposition toward others and that we can be people of kindness as the Scriptures would declare that we should be? The opening lesson in fact, involves this simple premise. Kindness involves action. It does, I think, seem a simple premise, but there's much the Scriptures would have us to appreciate about the thought. And that leads us back to that journey I mentioned previously, that journey that allows us to study some things about kindness. Notice there at the outset, it is the intent of the Scriptures that kindness is to be shown. It's to be exhibited or demonstrated not merely just in word only. For I think we shall shortly discover that words alone sometimes convey very little. Words alone often convey rather little substance in terms of addressing the need or of, in fact, addressing the shortcoming that is at hand. Consider these examples, if you would, with me. Some of them drawn from the Old Testament. Others of them we shall take from the New Testament. Let us revisit some of the early stages with regard to God's description to Israel. In the book of Exodus, specifically in Exodus 23, verses 4 and following, there God, in the midst of these various and sundry laws, ordinances, and regulations, had a very simple kind of prescription. If you see your neighbor's ox going astray, you shall not turn your back on it, and I'm paraphrasing, and ignore the fact of the ox, you shall take it to its owner. It may seem a simple matter, 
But of course, an ox was a very important thing in that ancient day. One needed it to grow crops, to provide for one's family. And certainly as well, it could cause damage if it happened to have a streak of meanness within it. You see this ox, you shall not forbear to ignore it. Rather, you shall in fact do that which is within your capability of helping to see it return to where it belongs. That was reiterated in Deuteronomy 22, and in a sense, it was even strengthened in that text. Israel was not to ignore and neglect a simple matter of kindness like helping with regard to an animal that's gotten out of its pasture. Many other matters concerning simple kindness could have been listed from the law of Moses. It seems as though that one, though, touches a very great matter with us today, doesn't it? There might be times you and I have that opportunity. A person with something that's lost and you and I happen to discover it, it comes by our way for one way or another. Would it not be an appropriate thing to at least try to ensure that it returns to its owner? Jesus did say, didn't he, in that very interesting text, that rule that is sometimes the highest ethic to be appreciated. That matter discussed in Matthew 7, verse 12. Whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. That statement found there in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 12 only challenges us to consider yet some other examples from both Old and New Testament alike. Didn't Rahab have the courage and, in fact, to exhibit the kindness to protect those spies from those who sought them? found, of course, in the book of Joshua. Didn't, of course, in addition to that, David exhibit great kindness toward Mephibosheth, the very son of Jonathan, his best friend? As you read the, second, the, the ninth chapter of 2 Samuel and notice the prolonged character of kindness that David exhibited toward Mephibosheth, it only helps us see the kind of heart that David had, and at that point in his life, was he not called a man after God's own heart? That statement made, of course, in 1 Samuel 13, quoted by Stephen in the New Testament, only helps us see the greatness of the kind of character that David had. He exhibited kindness. Even though the grandfather of this Mephibosheth had tried to kill David not once but twice, and even though that family, by virtue of the actions of Saul, had more than once opposed David, nonetheless David considered Jonathan an exceedingly dear friend and showed a remarkable element of kindness to Mephibosheth. As you and I well recall, Mephibosheth was lame. And in addition to that lameness, David thus ensured that he would be cared for. He was even granted the privilege of eating at the, in the palace with David at the very nature of the king's table. That was an act of kindness on the part of David. In addition to these examples, may we come to the livelihood of the Christ. All four gospel accounts record an occasion in which Jesus had great compassion on a multitude. They had been with the Savior the duration of the day. The day was now far spent and His own apostles urged Him, Send the multitude away so that they can go and find food in the villages and in the cities nearby. However, Jesus had a different idea in mind and it was prompted in Mark 6.34 by the little word compassion. It says the Lord had compassion on them. One of the reasons for the compassion was, Jesus said, they were a sheep not having a shepherd. 
but also they had gone the day and the Lord was fearful they would faint by the way. His compassion led him to miraculously feed 5,000 men alone, not counting the women and children, with but five loaves and two fishes. We find somewhat later in his feeding of the 4,000, notice again this comment made verbatim in Mark the 8th chapter, verse 3, the Lord was again fearful that they would faint by the way. Jesus, you see, was very aware of the plight that others faced. And he wished to meet the needs of them and to provide to the extent he could with the character of what would satisfy and meet those needs. On the day of Pentecost and in the weeks that followed it, the early church also exhibited some impressive kindness, didn't it? These who had traveled from distant places to celebrate the Pentecost, and nonetheless when they thus heard the gospel, about 3,000 of them responded in faith, and in the days that followed, others also responded. They were a long way from home, some of them. And yet the brethren met the needs of that group. For verse 44 of Acts 2 reminds us that they didn't consider their own possessions personal, but they were in common. They wanted in kindness to assist and encourage the faith of these others. In Acts the fourth chapter, we even read there about a gentleman who you and I recognize as Barnabas, but he was called the son of consolation. That word means son of encouragement. Barnabas was known as an encourager. And one of the ways he did that was he sold land, allowed that money to be used for the encouragement of others who were in need. These acts of kindness challenge us that the Bible seems to be filled with examples of kindness where individuals by their dedication to the truth gave of themselves to assist to show those matters of sympathy, gentleness, and forbearance to others. Perhaps one final example on that slide might take us to a very brief letter in the New Testament. None other than 3 John. One chapter book, but in verses 5 and following of that book, we read of the high commendation and the lovely complimentary character of a gentleman named Gaius. He had exhibited wonderful kindness to brethren, to strangers even, and the writer of that book, namely John, encouraged him to know that his kindness and the other activities of his life toward the brethren and to strangers were well known and that that was certainly a thing to be appreciated. The nature of these considerations of kindness, I think, motivates us then to at least summarize briefly some of those examples and to extend them in the following way. These examples only prompt us to ask, what is God's disposition toward kindness? And it is in this case, I would ask you to notice, that God demands kindness. He, in fact, wishes those who would be His servants and His followers and His saints to be people known for their kindness. These verses I would ask you to consider with me. Colossians 3, verse number 12. In the heart of that Colossian epistle, as the Apostle Paul directed some very piercing and penetrating words to the church in Colossae, it was this that he had to say to them. These were people to whom he had just said, If you then have been risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Verses 1 to 3. He then encouraged them to put away various things from their lives. Namely, verses 5 and following. Now he comes to some things in verses 10 and following that they were to add to their lives things they were to encourage upon themselves. Verse number 12 simply reads like this. 
put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Did you know with me in the midst of that impressive listing was put on, brethren, kindness. Have an attitude, have a disposition, have a desire to become better individuals of kindness. As you can see, that kind of listing is such that kindness finds itself in some rather amazing company. All of us know well about forgiveness. And we appreciate wonderfully about teachings concerning bowels of mercies and characteristics of humility and long-suffering and even that of meekness. And yet kindness is in the same list. Thus, we are admonished to be people of kindness. May I thus strive to be better in my kindness? I should. Can you find yourself in need of striving to mature in your disposition of kindness? We all should. For God desires us to exhibit kindness and to be people of that very framework. In 2 Peter 1, verse number 7, in that listing that we often categorize as the Christian graces, we well remember that we are commanded to do this. Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. If these things be in you and abound, Peter wrote, notice, abound, those things like love and patience and knowledge and virtue and even brotherly kindness, we should seek to exalt those things, trying to scrape by with a minimal amount of faith or a minimal amount of virtue or just to eat by by the skin of our teeth, to borrow the old expression, with as little love as we can get by with. That's not a person striving to inculcate all of the developments of Christianity and be the greatest servant that we can be. He said, seek to abound in these things. As you think about the notion there of brotherly kindness, it is interesting to notice that the American Standard renders that same phrase, love of the brethren. It is true, isn't it, that in some ways kindness and love seem to go hand in hand. For if one is prompted by and motivated by love, that person will desire that which is best for the object of that love, certainly. But that will involve elements of kindness, will it not? To, in fact, exhibit sympathy when that's in order. To show matters of aiding physically when that's the proper thing. The matters of kindness, as you can well tell with me, even help us see that sometimes we can forget that kindness can be showed by simple things. What about a smile? When a person is discouraged, when a person is in despair, when a person is dejected, when a person perhaps has been overwhelmed by bad news, sometimes even the kindness exhibited by a tender smile, a simple word of comfort can mean all the difference in the world. Acts of kindness may not be great things that gain worldwide notoriety. Sometimes the simple things can mean all the difference in the world. We ought not forget that famous statement in Zechariah chapter 4, let us not forget the day of small things. 
In fact, speaking of small things in regard to kindness, what was it our Savior exclaimed in the closing verse to Matthew 10? In verse 42 of that chapter, What about those who give a cup of cold water in my name? They will in no wise lose their reward. When you and I show kindness, when that's the proper matters, even in things simple as sharing water to those who are thirsty, sharing, in fact, water to a person who needs water, that act of kindness will be well noted by our Heavenly Father. May we have a heart desirous thus of exhibiting kindness, not just perhaps saying it in words, but to let that kindness to be shown by the lives that we live, the actions that we display. Intentions alone, though they too hopefully will lead to action, intentions alone are not in and of themselves their greatest benefit when it comes to kindness, are they? There's a rather famous text in James 2, beginning in verse 15, that very pointedly reminds us of that fact. There, the discussion is involved in the matters concerning faith and works. It was, in fact, there affirmed for us that suppose that individual who is in need physically of certain things, and you and I, with great pomp and circumstance, say, Depart and be you warmed and filled. Have we, in fact, aided that person? Have we met the needs of his or her life? Well, of course the answer is no. And that has led the writer there, James, by inspiration to say, Even so, faith if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Our kindness hasn't aided that person any. We've wished him well, and perhaps our hopes will ring loud and true for him, but if we were able to assist, should we not have done it? Should we not have made the availability of what you and I could to assist? The Scriptures remind us on a number of occasions about the affirmative answer to that question. Just as surely, though, as kindness is to be displayed, and it, in fact, presents itself in action, might we notice also yet another lesson about kindness? Just as surely as all those examples prompted us to see its importance in the Bible, and just as surely as we have also seen that it is, in fact, that which involves action, might we ask, what is the source? What's the fountainhead from which kindness springs? If we are more cognizant of that idea, it may assist us even better to appreciate and to put in place the teaching of the Bible on the subject of kindness. As we shall see, kindness is motivated by the nature of the heart. It is, in fact, a thing to be understood that when kindness comes from the heart, it is a motivation of our construct and our will, a motivation of our intellect and the nature of who we are. Kindness, it would seem, is not merely that which is like a coat that we put on and take off. It's a description of the kind of person that we should strive to be, a person, in fact, known for that element of kindness. To help us see that perhaps more clearly, no better commentary, of course, than the Bible itself, let's let the Bible explain it. As we look at these examples, starting in Leviticus 19.34, returning back to that ancient era, and listening to the saga of the sermon of the statement there made on when God gave Moses the law. In Leviticus 19, verse 34, the following statement is found. But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and thou shalt love him as thyself. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God." Israel was certainly embarking upon becoming a new nation. 
They had lived in Egypt, now they were to have their own land. In a few years, they, in fact, would have their own type of government directed and dictated by the God of heaven, and as he directed the kind of people that they were to be. He said, concerning those strangers that will dwell among you, notice again he says, you love him as yourself. Love emanates from the heart, doesn't it? Love is prompted by the intelligent and intellect and the feelings that are therein found. You, in fact, react toward and include that stranger, desirous of him not as an outcast, not labeling him as such, but you love him and share with him that which God has so richly shared with you. Doesn't he so tenderly remind them, after all, you were strangers in Egypt, weren't you? And yet I presented to you the greatness of my love and protected you and led you to the place where I wanted you to be. Kindness, again, exhibited there with great power and great forcefulness, only prompting us to notice in Zechariah 7, verses 9 and following, we have what may appear to be a tremendously direct statement. I would invite us to read it and then notice a bit about its context in Zechariah 7. This now was uttered hundreds of years after the statement of Leviticus 19. How had Israel reacted to it? Had they treated strangers the way they should? Had they been people of kindness the way that would have pleased their heavenly Father? Let us listen to the statements of the Lord to them in Zechariah 7. And the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment, and show mercy and compassions every man to his brother. And oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor, and let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. But they refused to hearken, and pulled away the shoulder, and stopped their ears that they should not hear. Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts hath sent in his spirit by the former prophets. Therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. As we've stated earlier, roughly a thousand years elapsed from the statements made in Leviticus 19 to these statements made by the prophet Zechariah. And yet as God spoke through him, he said, It was my will that they ought not oppress the widows. It was not my will that they thus ought to show disadvantage to those who were hurting or in need, even concerning the strangers. But yet notice in verse number 11, God said, They have refused to hear me. They have refused to respond to those commandments. And they have in fact done many of these things that in kindness ought never to have been done. Perhaps one final thought we might ask, how did God react to this shortcoming on the part of Israel? We noticed in verse number 12 that he said they've made their hearts like an adamant stone. And furthermore, the great wrath of God has been poured forth upon them. What wrath? Had these people not just been in Babylonian captivity? Yes, they had. Doesn't it remind us that God takes the display of kindness seriously and he also takes a display of inhumanity toward mankind seriously may thus we not be individuals of kindness appreciating the lord's injunctions concerning it and these other passages that we have previously studied these matters only prompt us perhaps to notice the next element i wished you to see came off in the new testament 
If you would, let's visit again the fourth chapter of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul, by inspiration, had kindness, at least in indirect ways, exhibited to us here by way of the teaching of heaven. And might we notice what it says about kindness? Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Rather than reading the entirety of verses 23 through 32, might I ask you to notice just a few of the precepts. In verse 24, the Ephesians were encouraged to put on the new man. After all, that old man of sin has been, in fact, crucified by the character of it was, in fact, put to death in baptism, and it was buried in baptism, wasn't it? Notice thus, you come forth a new creature in Christ. What does that new creature do, and how is he described? Those of us that are Christians know the glory of the day of our baptism and what a wonderful event that was. But with that as a background, notice what he then continues to say. As we come to verse 32, Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You and I, as citizens of the commonwealth of heaven, as individuals who have relinquished control of our life to the Savior, are here commanded to be kind one to another. We are to be people of kindness, with a desire to forgive each other, ever remembering the way in which Christ has forgiven us, ever appreciative of what was involved with tenderheartedness and kindness in God's dealings with us. After all, you and I were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. And God was rich in mercy to us, Ephesians 2.4. And in this very same book, He now says, You be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. The forgiveness that we enjoy and the kindness that we should exhibit one toward another are descriptives then of the family of heaven, the church. We here at Pippin, should thus strive to continue to exhibit kindness to each other as we try to set forth a great banner of Christianity, Hebrews 2 verse 10. And as that kindness is exhibited, the world will see the brethren love each other there. This is a community not like what I see in the world and not like what so many seem to profess, but it's genuine, it's real, and it's true. As that kindness is seen in my life, and in your life as well. Might I ask you to notice the renewal of the Spirit that Paul here described even in the language before us. Kindness is involved then in our renewal of what is this new man, and that renewal of the Spirit testified in verse 23 of this chapter. But inasmuch as that alone are powerful incentives, might you consider with me also a text from the Roman letter. In the 12th chapter of Romans, We'll begin in verse 10, but again, some of the text will be very familiar. In Romans 12, verse number 10, listen as the inspired apostle gives these instructions to the ancient church in Rome and by inspiration to you and me today as well. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. We'll pause there long enough to notice the adverb that Paul used. He didn't say be affectioned. He affirmed be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. The church in Rome was to be a church, a congregation, a group of people who exhibited, 
who with great brotherly love displayed kindly affection one to another. As we can see from some of the further descriptions given to us in, in that particular passage and chapter, you might notice a little bit later some of the very talents that individuals have are listed. That brings us back to a thought that seems so wonderful, doesn't it? God has seen fit in His infinite wisdom to grant us differing talents and abilities. I can't do what you can. And perhaps you can't do what I can as well as I can. Fact is, that is immaterial. When we together contribute our talents and our love and our time and our kindness to the mutual benefit of the church and His work, God's cause will be glorified and His name will be exalted and His work will be done. And we try to do that here at Pippin. And as individuals, we strive to be those that exhibit kindly affection one toward another in brotherly love and honor preferring one another. In verse 15, notice another practical way that's exhibited. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. When a brother is saddened due to great catastrophe or loss or due to factors which bring great loss to him or her, we are able with kindly affection to share that which we can to assist. And by the same token, when one of us is able to rejoice, all of us can share in that, at least in some way, and share our commendation and our congratulations, and even to celebrate with you when the proper time and the appropriate way in which that can be done. Brotherly kindness, in honor preferring one another. Can we perhaps not see, as we've looked at this text in Colossians even before this evening, we've read that previously, but there again Paul reminded us and even commanded us, Put on therefore as the elect of God bowels of mercies, tenderness, kindness. Might we not forget that is a commandment, isn't it? That word put, as its phrase there is, a Greek text that has behind it the thought of, make certain that this does occur. Put on therefore. It's not an option. When we thus strive to put on that element of kindness... Perhaps it leads us to some concluding thoughts in the lesson this evening. Injunctions reminded us in passages like 1 Peter 3, verse number 8. We also notice that whether it be Paul, whether it be the Savior, and even now Peter joins in the refrain, we shall find a commonness, a harmony, a uniform character that encourages us to see the importance of kindness. In this particular passage it reads, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. And you might notice that he isn't encouraging us in that word pitiful to be anything other than tender-hearted and to be humble. That reminds us again that though the word kind doesn't expressly appear there, many of those descriptive characteristics do. So may we, at this point in the lesson, take the injunction that kindness does involve action and that it does emanate ultimately and finally from the heart. What's the condition of your heart and mind tonight? Are we striving to be more kind? Do we take it seriously in a world that can be so cold and so careless to strive to be like the Lord and to exhibit kindness when the opportunity is before us? Our church strives to be benevolent to those families in the community in need and even those around the world whose needs we know. But even as individuals, 
Can we not strive perhaps to mature in our display of kindness and to, in fact, make certain our heart is in the characteristic to be a heart of kindness? Because if so, we can readily come back to the lesson text for tonight and close the lesson with one of the greatest fruits of kindness. Certainly kindness pleases God and it encourages the brotherhood. But there's one other thing that we should not overlook. The lesson text from Proverbs 19.22 again read like this. Proverbs 19, verse number 22. The desire of a man is his kindness. And a poor man is better than a liar. Another rendition or another translation might cast that into a light that takes on a greater significance, at least for you and me. The American Standard renders the opening part of that verse in the following way. That which maketh a man to be desired is his kindness. That which maketh a man to be desired is his kindness. If you and I want thus for others who are not Christians to appreciate what happens here, and the truth that's emanated here, and that what all the glory is of the Lord and His church, one of the ways that can be a very critical, integral part of making sure they come to know that is to react toward them with kindness. That which maketh a man to be desired is his kindness. May you and I strive to thus exhibit kindness and hence to be known as those who understand kindness and who strive to exhibit it. Some of the closing thoughts on that screen I hope will motivate us as a congregation and as individuals to learn the lessons the Scriptures have taught about kindness and to use them day by day in our prayer life, in the life that we have to exhibit directly with and toward others, that they might appreciate that we truly are genuinely concerned about them and that we do wish to be people of kindness toward them. That kindness that we can understand is highlighted in passages like Galatians 6, verse number 10. As you have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. As we thus strive to do good to the household of faith, even there Paul says when the opportunity is ours to do good to all men, maybe they're not of the household of faith yet. Perhaps in time they'll come to be so. They'll come to know the blessing that you and I already have come to enjoy. In 2 Corinthians 9.13, we notice again that Paul, even himself, spoke of the manifestation of the gifts of God that you and I can make, not only to the brotherhood, but yea, even to the larger community, sharing the goodness of God physically with those in need. Tonight, when we think about our kindness, may we use it to conclude our lesson with these summary thoughts. Lovely characteristic of kindness indeed is shown by so many passages that we've referenced. And as we've studied them, we've reached these conclusions. Kindness is something that is desirable. It's to be pursued because the Lord is kind and He wishes His people to also be those of kindness. It does involve action. It does emanate from the heart. And it truly is that which makes a man, or a lady as the case may be, to be desired. Tonight, the greatest kindness that God showed to us was to allow His Son to take our place and pay the price for sin. That great kindness should motivate us to try to show kindness to those about us. 
Tonight, are you a Christian? Have you thus responded in faith to the kindness God has showed you? If you have, you know what a change occurred in your life. But if you haven't yet responded to that in faith, why do you delay? Do you suppose tomorrow will be a better day for response? Or do you perhaps consider that next Sunday might be superior to this one? There have been occasions when maybe each of us have known individuals who had a statement that I'm going to obey today, but then they don't. Wednesday and then the next Sunday passes by and soon you find you're attending their funeral and they never responded. It's too late then. It's too late then. We understand that we have today. God has blessed us with the here and the now. If you have never become a Christian, please think urgently. Think from the perspective of eternity. And if you need to respond, we're going to make a convenient and opportune time in just a moment. As a hymn of encouragement is sung, you'll have the opportunity with a crowd, a throng of people here urging you onward because they desire you to know the blessing they have. They want you to, in fact, make a statement of your belief in the act of confession and then to aid you in being immersed for the remission of your sins. Those things, of course, follow the act of belief, the act of belief and repentance. If you have become a Christian, though, You've known and you've tasted the good gift of the glory of God, Hebrews 6, verse 4. But you have somehow let the taste slip from you. Come back tonight to your first love. The church in Ephesus, in fact, was commanded to do that in Revelation 2. They had left their first love and were told to repent and come back to it. Otherwise, the candlestick was going to be taken from them. Tonight, if you need to come back to your first love... If there's been sin in your life, others are aware of it, the shortcomings have been public, they will want to rejoice with you for your return to faithfulness and so that they could forgive you of those things that you may have done to them. If we could be of assistance in either of these ways tonight, we would urge you, please, let that be known in a public way while together we stand and while we sing.